try to do one thing really, 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 really well, or at least focus on trying to do that one thing well until it, you've proven that it doesn't work, and then you can pivot. Welcome to the HTW Podcast. We're your hosts, Zoe Sakutis and Erica Huss, founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled, and sold, and now we're moving on. We put down the juicer and picked up the mic to start a conversation. We'll bring you behind-the-scenes information on leading brands and emerging ideas in this rapidly evolving world of wellness. Every Wednesday, we chat with experts or entrepreneurs who help us cut through the noise and bring you information you can actually use. No shaming, no guilt, just the cold-pressed truth about real ways you can feel better, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And bonus, we even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of your wellness journey. Clinical studies have shown that writing five-star reviews improves mood and circulation. So if you like what you hear, give us some love and share with a friend. Often irreverent and occasionally intuitive, consider us your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Good afternoon, Erica. Hey, Zoe, how you doing? I'm doing okay. (laughs) Hey, um, did you go to see a show last night? Is that what I saw? Uh, I did. I went to see, it was not a show. It was Napoleon Dynamite Live. Oh, Napoleon Dynamite Live. Yeah, what is that character? I I remember him and... What is the character? No, I mean, I know who he is, but he had this show, right? Napoleon Dynamite. I I don't know, refresh my memory. No, I mean, basically it was a screening of the movie at the King's Theater, which was stunning and beautiful. And I'd never had that experience before. You've been and to King's Theater before though, no? I don't think that I had. I <gasps> thought that I had been there. And oh, then it's such a cool theater. It's amazing. It's in it's Brooklyn. Gorgeous. It's and like they, one of my favorites, yeah. Yeah, and they spent like tens of millions of dollars on this massive renovation because it used to be like, you know, straight up movie theater in the early, you know, like my dad used to go to the movies there when he was a kid. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's beautiful and it's ornate and it looks like one of the, you know, a premier opera house that you would see in in a major city. Yeah, I've seen some stuff there. Actually, the last thing I saw there was... uh... You might you might have seen it too. It was the PJ Masks live oh. show. Um, <laughs> I, you told, I thought you were going to say Two Dope which Queens. Was, no, see, I see. Two Dope Queens also does their show there. Um, <laughs> if you ever watch them, love them. But no, I did not because I'm I'm not that cool. I just brought my toddlers to see PJ Masks live there. But uh, but it was such a beautiful it yeah. A beautiful it's theater. an incredible experience. It yeah. was yeah. So it was it was just it was a it was a screening of the movie on the big screen, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And then they had a talk after with the two actors who played Napoleon Dynamite and uh, Pedro. 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 So that was fun. It was fun. It was like a nice little, you know, surprise date night. Nice. Yeah. Still keep stoking the fire. Keeping it alive. Keeping it alive. (laughs) So I would never think that you could spend more than 60, 70 minutes, 60, 70 seconds talking about socks. Oh, but we weren't just talking about socks, Erica. We were talking about incredible businesses that are social. Yeah, I mean, this is okay. So we just we just met with and spoke with the amazing co-founder of Bambas Socks, Dave Heath. David Heath. Does he like to be called Dave or David? I think he's Dave. Dave. So he, and along with his co-founder... Randy Goldberg. Randy Goldberg. 
Um, for some reason, I have every time I see that name, I want to say Andy Goldsworthy. It's just a, a weird thing in my brain. I don't know yeah. what happens. Yeah, mm-hmm. amazing artist. Anyway, they created this amazing company that is a buy one, give one. I mean, I think anybody who's listening to this podcast or any other has probably maybe had some level know, of familiarity with Bombas. Maybe not. They do a lot of advertising on podcasts. Yeah, but I think they have not advertised on our podcast yet, but. <laughs> That's obviously coming next. Um, just kidding. We're ad-free guys just for you. Uh, but anyway, they, he has such an amazing story. This business has been... It's gone totally gangbusters. I mean, they're doing like hundreds of millions of dollars in, in six sales years. in six years. And they we're talking about socks. Socks. They're, they're beautifully made socks. They are literally the best socks you'll ever buy. And um, the give back component is just makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Yeah. It's, it's um, about it's good. that good the stuff. socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters. And Dave shares the story of how learning that fact, you know, t- eight years ago actually is what sort of inspired him to start a business. So it wasn't even starting a business and then backing into it with a give back component. Um, but it was really the give back itself was what kind of lit the spark of inspiration to create this company. And true story, I own probably 20 pairs of these socks and they are super, super comfortable. And this is not a sales pitch in any way. This is just my own personal taste. Yeah, yeah I just bought a ton for my kids because they have the grip. The kid, they make kid socks too. And they have the nice grippers on the bottom. Which is like, I don't understand why you would ever make a kid sock without them. Without the yeah. grip on the bottom. Yeah. Uh, this is why I don't put my daughter in tights. Right. I'm like, she'd just be falling on her ass yeah, all day. Like so, Bambi on the ice. <laughs> literally, yes. It's like, I, some things just have, they feel very thoughtless. And this is a very thoughtful company in yes. so many ways. And he shares a story about how he started from day one and all of the amazing things that go into this company and their strategy on how they got to where they are. And uh, we learned a few things and we hope that you will yeah, too. It's a heartwarming story. Yeah. And okay. give it a listen. Okay. Welcome, Dave Keith. Thank you. Co-founder yeah. of Bombas. Bombas. Co-founder, Bombas. CEO Founder, as well. Yeah, co-founder, CEO. What else you got? More titles? Nope, that's it. Along, along with Randy Goldberg. Along with Randy Goldberg, who's uh, one of my co-founders, chief brand officer. And then I have two... Uh, other co-founders kind of behind the scenes. Um, my brother, Andrew Heath, he's our COO. And then uh, Aaron Walk, he's our chief creative officer. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Keeping, yeah. The, keeping the family involved. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Well, I think I would like to point out and say, I think that many listeners are familiar with Bumba's because you guys do a lot of ads on podcasts, which we is do. pretty cool. Especially one of our, a lot of ads one of our favorites, uh, Doc Shepard, armchair expert. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We don't do ads on our podcast, by the way. Oh, yeah. Not you're yet. welcome. I think maybe not ever. No? Okay. I don't know. I just like, seems like sure. Keep it kind pure. of ad-free model. And like, if people want to give us some love in other ways, that's awesome. We were right. thinking about just um, throwing out our Venmo account. Yeah. And being like, <laughs> Hey, you know what? If you feel like supporting, not a bad idea. My Venmo um, account is just, you could find me, Zoe yeah. Secutus. Just you like, want to throw me five bucks? Send us a couple bucks. It, will, contri- it will contribute to this ad free podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in the meantime, we thought, no, let's take it a step further. Let's actually tell the whole story and not just have people feel like they have to buy socks, even though by the end of this conversation, I imagine everybody's going to be buying your socks. Hopefully, they will. So, let's take it back to the beginning. 
God, you guys are both wearing the socks right now. So okay, Bob, I legitimately wear these every day. I legitimately wear I mean, them every I day, do, too. too. Well, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so where are you from? Uh, I'm from Armonk, New York. Uh, Where's that? Which is in Westchester County. Did you go to Byram Hills? I did go to Byram. You did? Oh my God, yeah. what is that? All of my friends that I grew up with, that I went to camp with, were from Armonk, and they uh, all went to Byram Hills. Yeah, and I remember... Small school. Is so. that like a really good school? It's a good public school. Yeah. yeah, it was a public school? Yeah, it's a good okay. public school. It was like a badge of honor to get to wear somebody's Byram Hills Bobcats sweatpants at Whoa. camp. That meant that you were either hooking up with somebody from Armonk or you were I, I was going to say, really good that friends sounds with like somebody. some real early boyfriend jeans <laughs> yeah. with like sweatpants. Totally. <laughs> Westchester sweatpants. Um, oh my God. I'm glad that we saved that for a big See, reveal. This is good. We started from the beginning. See, I told you guys. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're from Westchester. I'm from Westchester. And where, uh, what did your parents do? Uh, so my dad's an entrepreneur. Um, so this is where I think, you know, from early days, just I think through general, like either osmosis or some sort of DNA, um, I got the entrepreneurial bug. My mom was originally a banker and then became a teacher, then a substitute teacher, and then a full-time stay-at-home mom because she had two very rambunctious ADHD kids in the house. Three, if you include my father. She really helped. You know, She was the glue that kept us all together right. and made sure that we were all in the places that we needed to be, had the right food that we needed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and as my dad's company got more and more successful, she started handling kind of the family finances. What did he, uh, what was he selling? So uh, if you've ever seen wood chips on playgrounds. Like uh, mulch? It looks like mulch, but okay. when it's specifically on playgrounds, there's a safety system that's okay. below it um, that utilizes wood chips. And so he invented that safety system. Um, wow. Oh, so, so he's anytime, like anytime you see that on a playground, that's my dad's That's method. Mr. Heath. Yeah. That's We're pretty cool. About Mr. Yeah. Heath. Um, and I spent a lot of time on playgrounds. I'm sure. So, And this was like quite revolutionary because like <laughs> you know. it allowed, there's a drainage system because, you know, because the way that wood fibers come together, it's like kind of a natural mesh, but you could also still like roll wheelchairs on it. So it was ADA compliant. And, right. Oh, very cool. Uh, yeah. That's pretty neat. Do they also use them in dog parks? Like under those? No, that's not. That's just general mulch. That's just They wouldn't pay for the safety system of like, this is like rated so that if a kid falls off of a slide or a thing, he's not going to kill him. Right. Wow. All right. That's pretty cool. So you saw your dad having like success in... Yeah. And I mean, it was was a different kind of era, I think, of entrepreneurship. You know, this is like back when there wasn't a lot of like venture capital. I mean, my dad always like laughs when I told him that I was going to go raise around, you know, to fund this thing. He was like, <laughs> why would anybody give you money? Like, you know, this is just an idea. Um, you know, and he, you know, he saved $5,000 and started his business in the basement of our house and then slowly built it that way over 35 years. So Good for him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's like that's and such a great example for you to bear witness to. And yeah, you were yeah. inspired. You said totally, and yeah. and you know, I I I was fortunate that you know we kind of grew up when I was first born. We were kind of lower middle class, and then we obviously became middle class, and then due to the success of that, we became upper class. And then you know, it was always my drive. I think I think kids can go one of two ways. I think they can either you know 
take that for total granted, right? And become like a spoiled rich kid and, you know, not have aspirations to really do anything. But the real driving motivating factor for me was, I was like, well, if my dad did this with basically nothing, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, he was, grew up in England post-World War II and, you know, his parents weren't very wealthy. And so I was like, well, if I have a an amazing college education and kind of all the resources at my own disposal. If I'm going to ever do this, I've got to create something that's bigger and, you know, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And that's the right attitude. I think you started with more advantages. So yes, it totally. felt that it was on you too. Like, how could you squander that? And exactly. For you. So yeah. what did you go to school for? Uh, I went to school for entrepreneurship. So I went to Babson college. That's amazing that that was, I even, know. That, that's even a thing. Exist. It was like, it's an option to go to school for entrepreneurship. Okay. Yeah. And, and even when I went, I mean, it must've been know, the first, year that they were offering it. No, 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 no. Babson's been around for, you know, since like late 1800s and they've always focused on entrepreneurship. Really? Uh, really? It's just entrepreneurship wasn't really a thing, you yeah. know, that was mainstream, you know, until sure. I would say the last 15, 20 years was kind of the revolution of like the tech boom and seeing, you know, these 20-year-old CEOs creating, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. So what, inventing things in your garage yeah. and then finding actual ways to sell them. Exactly. And I think technology has obviously opened sure. up the world for entrepreneurship um, in, a, in a really amazing way. Could you just give me a couple examples of like some of the names of the courses that you took if you have a major in yeah. entrepreneurship? Um, so every single one of my classes uh, had a business, some sort of a business tie-in. So we had even my liberal arts classes were like Latin American history, but it was looking at it from an economic and political sense. I had uh, rhetoric was my like fret was one of my freshman classes, and it was all about speech writing and then speech giving. Wow! Um, what? So these are, and then there's obviously like the, the basics like intro to business law and business accounting, and That's we were amazing, all though. required <laughs> to take like could you every imagine? single oh, one of these no, classes. Um, you couldn't like only do a market. You could major in marketing as you got past freshman, uh, sophomore year, but your freshman and sophomore year, you were, were required to take kind of core business classes. So you were That's kind awesome. of super well-rounded and then you could focus in a specific one. But our freshman year, and they still do this, they group you up with 30 other students and they make you uh, start a business. Uh, so your first half of this, your first half of the year, you work on kind of putting a business plan together. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of the year, you start a campus run business, basically. So what was yours? Uh, we did posters. It was, I think it was called Posterama. <laughs> uh, you did like a little kiosk and you could like, this is back when digital, like was people would like bring their flashcards and, you know, upload an image and we'd like print it on a poster and put it in your dorm room. Okay. And then did you have like Shark Tank type judges? I guess no, those were your it professors? was just like that. It was just like, yeah, based on kind of, end of the semester presentation. And then your sophomore year, you do, you group in teams of five and then you go to a local business and you basically act as business consultants helping them solve a problem. So it's very, very interesting. I would like to go and curriculum. audit some shit at Babson College, by the way. Yeah. Just because I feel like I, I could, could learn something. Yeah. I'm like, so uh, wow. guys, what's your marketing spend for these posters? <laughs> Let's talk about it's your packed LTV on this. One. <laughs> um, that's very cool. That's so, okay. Cool. So, yeah. did you? Well, you you did work in kind of more of traditional jobs before you kind of went off on your own. Was that? I mean, I mean yes. You went into media. Said no. Yeah. I mean, I, I always did pretty weird stuff. So um, through through college, I know, while everybody else was getting internships at Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and places that no longer exist, um, I sold Cutco knives. Mm, what's a so, cut knife? It's a 
So it's this like door to door kind of knife <laughs> salesman y type of thing. Um, there, there's tons of people. It, there, this is like a multi billion dollar company. It's a um, specifically it, Cutco is or that whole Cutco, yeah. It's like um, the Mary Kay of knives, something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but what they specifically work on is they target college students and, you know, they help them, they train them, they give them all this kind of like basic selling like skills. You go to conferences and it's really, it's like a big thing. And over my four years, I became one of the top sales reps in the Northeast. I'd sold $400,000 in over my four summers. And they've got this really competitive commission program too. So I think I made in total, I think I made like close to $175,000 over four years of going to school, working four hours a day, four days a week, while my other friends were like getting coffee and, uh, Good that, for you. Okay, so man. I have to ask because my husband did something similar. He actually sold books, okay. um, like reference books, yeah. and he sure. has amazing stories about all of like the tactics and yep. you know certain strategies that he used. And he did the same thing. He paid his way through law school. Did you have a song or a power pose or a power pose? I didn't have a song. I didn't have a power like. Did you do pose? this before you walked <laughs> like knocked on a door? Not, arms up in the air. Arms up in a V. No. There was they had some like mantras and stuff internal, nothing that you shared with the customer, but you know, they had they had a bookman song. I'm just curious. It sounds like maybe you got a little well, shafted. We didn't. Um like but that. it was like it was like core, it was like objection handling. And I think the reason that, you know, I got so good at it is and I think anybody who does it gets so good at it is because, you know, every sales pitch is like an hour long. So mm-hmm. you, you know, in the beginning I was doing like seven to eight pitches a day. You know, and so you, you you like learn something from one, and then you go to apply it, and the next one, and you're like, "Holy shit, that worked!" Yeah, right? like that thing that like. Let me try this again, and then yeah. like try you keep refining and honing and honing and honing, and then you go to these conferences, and they give you like different selling techniques and like you know lines that you would use, and you'd be like, "Holy shit, this is crazy!" I just literally said verbatim what they said, and it and like it got them to buy it. Bizarre, and they're still they're still like oh yeah business and yeah. crushing it, crushing it. That's, it's yeah. amazing that a business can be that size, and yet I've never heard of it. Yeah, I've definitely heard the name Cutco Knives, but I didn't yeah. know that this is what was behind all of it. Yeah. Okay, so you did that all right? So how did you meet your co-founder? So Randy. after college, I graduated again. I was I was really good at sales, so I. You know, I did what I think any college kid does at the time when they don't have money. They look at how they can make the most amount of money. Software sales was a was was the one industry where I, I found out like salespeople were making the most money. You know, people making several million dollars a year selling enterprise software, and so I was like, "Oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm good at sales and like sell anything." Did it for a couple of years. I fucking hated it. It was so boring. But you did I, it for a couple of years. Yeah, I did it for three years. Wow. Yeah, for two different companies. And then I also was like, all right, this is not for me. Like, I don't like working at a, a, you know, bigger companies. I went and started my first company, which is a social networking site for apartment buildings called Building Neighbors. Think of next door, but like seven years prior. What is next door? It was started by one of the co-founders of of Twitter. Um, wow. And it's basically like a social networking site for kind of your local community. So okay. you can find the you know, find out it's like a directory, but it also combines like directory with Facebook. So you can like find out what interests your neighbor has. Right. And like, oh, wow, we both have kids the same age or dogs. Right. And like, like, cool and also a little creepy. A little creepy. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so I it's lived literally in these large a little apartment buildings in Manhattan. And I right. wanted to, you know, my motivating factor was I was actually like, wow, there's a lot of cute girls in this yeah, building. Right. <laughs> and I have no way to talk to hey, them. Like, so, you know, 10 second elevator rides is like a weird way to like pick somebody up. And I had no confidence at the time. So I, was like, I totally, just for the record, it can happen. I exchanged numbers with a dude on the subway 
like between two stops and we ended between up, two stops yeah we ended up dating how did also. that initiate who made the we of? were okay sorry we're gonna segue here for my we were both swimming at like i think it was a the crunch gym or something in midtown this is so long ago and we we're literally the only two people in the pool doing laps and then we didn't talk and then we literally went to our dressing rooms got dressed and then ended up coming out you know it's that moment where you're yeah. like see the person walking down the street and then we ended up going onto the same train we go on the same car and then we're like kind of looking at each other he was really hot and then we just started laughing like we didn't even say anything okay. and then yeah. he was like yeah so like just randomly on no right. but it was that i get but it was uh it was a very quick moment i'm just saying where you could okay. be like hey you see someone in your building right. and then finally you're on the elevator and you're just like hey that's I like an extended 24 years you. old i had no confidence in that. <laughs> was like so i'm still like afraid of girls. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, so, so I, so I quit, I, I started that company. I worked on it for a year. I put a bunch of my own money into it. It started to take off from a product standpoint, but I had clear, one of my first lessons in business was I had no idea I was actually going to make money. And so, and again, this was 2006. So this was like really not in the world where like, you're just like, I've got an idea on a piece of paper. Let me go raise $5 million. Mm-hmm. Did you try to raise money? Or, no, okay, you're no, just like, I'm going to fund it myself. Yeah. I mean, again, Facebook was like only four years old at this time. Like, it wasn't that, you know, it was just like early days, yeah. 2006. So I ended up uh, shutting it down because it was just like kept pouring more money into it. And I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to make money. So I'm just like losing money at this point. So I shut it down and I went back to work. And that's where I went to work at Urban Daddy. And that's where I met my co-founder, Randy. Uh, so I was the seventh. Did you exchange numbers on a subway? By the water cooler. Um, so he was the sixth employee. I was the seventh. And our oh, wow. chairs literally touched, you know, like they backed into each other. And he'll always, you know, he, his, his memories are a little bit different because I'm, I was in sales and, and I was on the phone a lot and he's a copywriter. Okay. So like he basically like my my loud voice would echo in his like brain oh, while I was like trying to write insane. a story. It would yeah. Why did they seat you guys yeah. near each other? I mean, it was just, tiny just like an eight person office. It's yeah. not like we had much choice. And then so how long were you guys at Urban Daddy? Uh I was there for five years. Randy was there for six. Okay. And so it was while we were there in February 2011. And, and over that course of the time, we'd kind of developed a really close friendship. Uh, we worked out together. We you know, ate a lot of our lunches together. And we'd always talk about you know, potentially one, one day starting a business together. Based on our experiences at Urban Daddy, the things that we really liked about what had been done well there um, in terms of talent identification and you know, creating... You know, uh, the culture among like great people, mm-hmm. but then also the things that we actually thought could be done a lot better. So mm-hmm. things around transparency and and um, you know really empowering your employees. So uh, so yeah, we kind of took those learnings and we said, okay, let's apply this to something someday. And we had a myriad of ideas. But I in February 2011, I was scrolling on Facebook and I came across this quote that said, "Socks are the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters," and. I just kind of like stopped me for a second. And I was like, man, that's really sad. Here's something that like is a clothing item that I've never spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about is perceived as a luxury item for somebody else. Mm-hmm. When I walked over to Randy's desk and I was like, oh, did you know that socks are the most requested clothing? He's like, no, but that's sad. And so he had the similar reaction that I did. And we didn't really do much with it at that point. You know, we just kind of like stuck with us and we both kind of told other people about it. And then it was about a couple months later, you know, 
this was, yeah. So again, early 2011, Warby had just launched like mm-hmm. four months prior, five months prior. Warby Parker. Warby Parker. Tom's shoes was already. And Tom's well was in their way. fifth year of yeah. business. So still young, but growing. Yeah. And they were quite established in this movement. And, you know, once Warby part launched, it was kind of this, oh, wow, somebody's taken this Tom's model and applied it to, sung- uh, you know, to eyewear because that yeah. was their initial like launch thing. They've pivoted their story a little bit since then. But again, their thing was about this social impact cause. And that's when the light bulb for me went off. And I was like, oh, I wonder, you know, if they're doing it for shoes, they're doing it for eyewear. I was like, I wonder if we can do something similar for socks. And so we kind of, you know, embarked on a little bit of a fact-finding journey. And we said, okay, if we're going to, you know, donate a lot of socks, we're going to, we need to sell a lot of socks. And if we're going to sell a lot of socks, we've got to create something that's unique and special in the marketplace. We can't just, you know, produce the similar thing that's out there. Mm-hmm. And so we dove headfirst into the um, sock market and you know went to stores and just tried every type of product on. Mm-hmm. And we tried to understand what the difference was between you know a dollar pair of socks that you'd get in a 12-pack at Walmart mm-hmm. and these hyper, you know, performance-driven niche uh, you know, marketed products that were like running and cycling and basketball and hiking that were 15, 18, 24, $36 a pair. And generally not that comfortable in my own experience, but that's just the same. Well, so we, we pulled a lot of the innovation and tech and technology that we were seeing in that upper end of the, uh, that market. Um, and realizing that none of that was actually bleeding over into the mass market. So mm-hmm. things like seamless tone, arch support and contoured footbeds and, uh, high performance fibers and, and they were all being designed and marketed towards those very endemic categories. But so we basically said, okay, well, we actually find a lot of these features to be massive improvements just for daily wear. And so the kind of our next hypothesis was like, okay, well, what if we created a brand that took all of these features, but then marketed them to the mass market consumer and educated the mass market on why these things just were more comfortable for your daily wear? Just kind of amazing because it feels like you really you achieved two things at once. It wasn't just creating a business, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but obviously I think we we all know how the story unfolds a little bit. We don't know how it ends yet, but um, not only did you find a way to achieve this, you know, this goal of finding this give back component and really responding to what struck you both as a need, but also innovating around something that. I don't think anybody had ever spent much time thinking about Correct. like how do you hack socks, at least right. for the mass consumer. Sure, right. all of these like performance fabrics and whatever are figuring it out. But I mean, I don't even know that like Tom could or that Blake could say that about what he did with Tom's shoes. Like he didn't necessarily create better shoes for mass consumers. Yeah, his was more of a trend play, right? He took an right. espadrille, right. something that was popular in South America, but hadn't really made its way into the mass market up here as a shoe. Um, and that was kind of his unlock from a product right. perspective. Yeah, that was a pretty good, pretty yeah. good find, man. Yeah. Um, so what was your, like when you thought about price point, because I imagine that must have been like the biggest or one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle, right? It was just like, you're taking the best of, of all of these other things that already exist in the market, kind of pulling them all together and then saying, I know you're used to paying six or seven dollars for a pair of socks, but we've just like made the super premium sock and we're going to charge you almost double that. Yep. What was your price point at launch? So we launched with at nine dollars. Okay. So so basically our, our thought was, and I think one of the things that 
was a massive benefit for us is that because we had no manufacturing or product development experience, especially in apparel, you know, I really came at this from a blank slate and as a consumer. And I said, I want to create a product that I would want to wear, right? What are the things and features that are important to me? And then, you know, I'll figure everything else out later, right? I just wanted to create the best version. And it was funny when I was working with our factory partners and I was like, I want to put a seamless toe on our, you know, on an athletic sock. And for those that don't know, that's that like toe seam that runs across. The oh front yeah. Of your we sock all know that, that everybody, damn toe yeah, seam. it's like always bothering you and your shoe. You're always trying to move it around. It's really that's irritating. Terrible. And they were like, no, you wouldn't put a seamless toe on an athletic sock. Like those are only reserved for like really expensive Italian made dress socks. Like that's where you find that because this feature is very expensive. And I was like, well, what's really expensive? And they're like three cents a pair. And I'm like, why is like I, like, I think the market can bear I that. Like, I don't think that that's crazy. <laughs> I, I, but in the mass market, like the stuff that you're getting, you know, at Walmart and Costco and some of these other places, they literally they talk in in socks. They talk in terms of dozens because mm-hmm. those socks literally cost less than a penny because to they're make. so cheap, they're right? Less than a penny, so they have to talk in a larger quantity. That's like, so amazing. So that's where their mindset was like, well, you could produce three pairs of socks for a toe seam, right? Like right, the right. cost of a toe seam. So this is where we came at it. We're like, I think we can get the consumer right, to right. pay more. And again, it benefits you to not have that experience in context. Correct. It is so helpful. And so one of the parallels that we've drawn, you know, that we always look to, you know, during this process was Starbucks, right? We're taking a highly commoditized product. We're making it a lot better. We're offering a better experience and we're charging the customer three times more. That's something that can only work in lower cost items, right? Mm-hmm. You can't take that same theory and apply it to cars, right? You can't say like, oh, I'm going to take a $10,000 car, make it three times better, you know, and get a customer who would normally pay 10 to spend 30. But right. a cup of coffee, like a pizza, right? yeah. You know, on a pair of socks, it works. Like the difference between someone spending, you know, $30 a year on socks or $80 a year on socks is not the thing that's going to like, break the household. Sure. Um, right. So I, I, it's just so fascinating. It's like there are so many of those types of companies and it's just really hard to figure out what the price point is, what the market bear, what are people willing yeah. to spend? And I guess if you layer on this sort of give back component, right. did the price point, did you arrive at this price point because that's how much it costs to make it? Or like how much of that price point was factoring in the give back component. Yeah. Like, well, so, and were you also sorry just to add on that? Were you were you also going after? Were you targeting a margin when you went into the price point, or were we you weren't? Back? No, we weren't targeting margin because again, we're not apparel people, so we didn't have that like insight to like sure. target a you know a margin that would set us up for wholesale or whatever. Right. Um, you know, there was a combination of like okay. It's got to have an, enough margin in there to support the financial model, the really rough financial model that we had built originally. Like, you know, just on paper, like, you know, is there enough profit in here to sustain our, our overhead uh, in the early days? And then there was a certain element of like, I don't know, I just was like, I want it to be under $10, right? Yeah. Like, so that's where originally I landed on nine. I was like, I just want it to be a single digit, you know, but it was, it was funny after a year, you know, we kept coming back to this question of like, how do we know are we priced correctly? You know, we're selling really well, but yeah. like, you know, are we losing some, leaving some margin on the table or, you know, are we priced too high? And then we ultimately, I think one of the key things that we've done really well over the, over all the years that we've been in business is anytime we hit a roadblock on a problem that we can't solve, we try to turn to an expert who can help us figure that out. And so tapped into my network and I was like, look, there's got to be someone out there that understands pricing, right? Like, you know, consumer goods. 
And so ultimately got linked up with this guy who is the head of pricing at, at Kellogg Northwestern. He's a professor. He literally wrote the number one selling textbook on pricing. What's his name? Uh, John Hogan. John Hogan. Yeah, John Hogan. <laughs> Smart um, And so, you know, this is this was so early for us. And and we were he was like, look, in order to do a comprehensive conjoint pricing analysis, I've got to pay a survey company, all this stuff, and it's gonna cost about fifty thousand dollars. And we're like, oh, that's not uh, that's so. I know insane amount of like, money. We were tempted so often to do surveys, and we're just like, this is outrageous. Yeah. yeah. But anyway. so we ran this survey, and four months later, he comes back with all the data, and he shows us like the price elasticity curve from where you could sell the most and where you could generate the most profit. Right. So it's a you know, do you want to be in growth mode or do you want to be in profitability mode? And he was like, you guys are like two dollar price, two dollars below where the market is telling you that they'll buy it. So we moved our price from nine to 11. And the interesting thing is we saw all of our conversion rates go up. Wow. So there was actually a price to quality discrepancy. So we, they actually, the consumer thought that for what we were offering, we were priced too low and it made it seem as if it was a lesser product that it wasn't as good. Right. right? So There's you like got no way we could have had all this stuff in there. Right. So once we moved the price to 11 and then sales continued to climb and continue to climb. And then he was like, I actually think you could push it a dollar more. And so we pushed it up to 12 and that's where we've well, been ever is, since. And you were already in the market selling. Yeah. Okay. So your, your consumers were okay with you increasing the price. Did Correct. you have to explain that to them? No. We just did it. You're like, no, and you, it. there was well, again, <laughs> most, uh, you got to understand this was, you know, early days. So like at that point, I think 95% of our revenue was still new customers. Right. So like they were still seeing like all the customers we were acquiring online were still seeing the price for the first time. Okay. Okay. So these aren't repeat. Right. But did you get any response from your, from your core customers, from your repeat customers or was it? So one now? of the things that we ended up doing in that price increase was we also identified that buying behavior for socks is actually a PAX driven business. Mm. And so we were, we were only offered singles on our site when we first launched. And when we did this pricing analysis, we started offering uh, packs and then we offered discounts on the packs. On packs right? So that was a way that the consumer then, when they came back, they were like, okay, I really like this product. Oh, and I get a 20% discount sure. if I buy 12 or more or whatever. So there's like a fairness element that right. goes into all of That's this. so interesting because you know when we think about Blueprint and I, I just wonder how much of that same idea factored into the consumer's willingness to pay a super premium for mm-hmm. a product because it, it equated in their mind to the most premium superior product, right? Like anything less. Like I wonder had we priced it lower, would it have been as successful? Which sounds crazy to say, but like maybe the communication would have been that it just was, it couldn't have been as good. But well, we certainly couldn't have dropped prices, which we've, we've no, we couldn't have discussed it. We yeah. couldn't have dropped it because that would have automatically suggested as it might actually now in present day, right. um, if it costs less, it must be there's being, there's a corner being cut. Well, and right. we see that in that category in general, just cold pressed juice. Like when it started, it was, you know, where we set it, which was roughly $10 per bottle. Right. And now it's roughly half that. Yeah. And the quality I would say is also half that. Yeah. I, I'm skeptical when I see cold pressed juice oh, for it's, like it's four all, or five it's, bucks. Right. I'm like, it's there's what? no way the ingredients no. in this can no, be. It's no, it's like water. processed. The shelf life has been pushed out. It's yeah. all been compromised. Yeah. But um, so can you take us back to the moment when you guys decided to actually launch and yep. when did you know you were ready and how did you go about raising your first, how did you get yourself out there? Yeah. So it took us about, we spent about a year and a half on product development. So from February, 2000, 
uh, 11 um, through kind of March of 2013. So yeah, almost about two years, actually. Um, we'd been just solely focused on just you know, refining the product. And, you know, in the meantime, we've talked about what do we want to call it? What's our brand story? You know, and, and this is where two, you know, two of the other co-founders came along. Um, Aaron, who's uh, our chief creative officer, he had worked as a designer at a bunch of agencies and my brother had, you know, worked in investment banking. And so he understood the finance side. So Andrew helped build all the financial models. Aaron and Randy really worked on the visuals and what, mm-hmm. what the brand, how the brand would show up in the world. And then Randy and I, once the product was kind of done, which I spent most of my time on the product, in March of 2013, we both decided to quit our jobs and focus full-time uh, on writing the script for what would ultimately be our Indiegogo video. Because we knew we wanted to launch on Indiegogo. We're, we're like, all right, we're going to be a digitally first brand. you know. And prior to taking anybody's capital, we had no sales. We didn't think anybody would give us money. Um, we're like, how do we like prove And your dad concept? told you you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. You know, my, I wouldn't have asked my parents for money anyway. No, I mean, he didn't um, think you were going to get money. Although it's his biggest regret. I <laughs> <laughs> So... Uh, so yeah, we you know the 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 reason for ultimately quitting our jobs and going full time on it is is we for for almost six months we kept saying all right we're going to launch next month and we're going to launch next month and we're going to launch next month and the timeline just kept pushing out sure. all the time because we kept having we had so much work that we needed to just do and just like really block out time to get it done you know in terms of really kind of setting the the, the brand story and figuring out how are we going to talk about this in the marketplace we've got this donation component we've got these seven you know, technology improvements in the sock and got this design element and how are we going to you mm-hmm. know, talk about this to the consumer? There's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, on. I imagine hard to prioritize which story is like, which story leads. Super hard. That yeah. was a really, that was a really challenging, you know, and what's the right mix? And yeah. What's going to be the elevator pitch versus the long form? And and so ultimately we we're like, okay, we feel confident. We've handed out about 2000 samples to friends and family. You know, the, re- the response has been amazing. People want more of them, you know, among our initial network. And so we're like, okay, let's launch on Indiegogo. It'll, you know, if it does well, it'll give us the capital to build a website, place our first production order. And if it doesn't do well, then maybe this thing is not for us and maybe we should go work on something else, right? So, okay, that's interesting because Indiegogo in general, I always think about people going on there, sharing you know, sharing their idea, having no success, and then someone else coming and scooping up their idea. So is there any fear of that? Or you were just like, no. no. I mean, again, this is still pretty early days for things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Right. I mean, you know, it wasn't the day, you know, nobody had raised like over a million dollars at that point. It was still, you know, in the fifties to hundred thousand dollars. So what was your, so for people who don't know, like Indiegogo is a crowdfunding. It's a crowdfunding uh, set platform right. um, so, where you basically pre-sell your product. Right. Um, and so what were you looking to make or sell? We were sell looking to raise $15,000 or sell $15,000 and we ended up selling 150. <laughs> so we did $24,000 in our first day. Um, wow. Which was all of those people that we'd handled samples to sure. over the years had come ah, back and okay. bought, which that was very validating sure. for me, right? This was people who I thought were just being like, yeah, it's great. Yeah, like, it's this is an awesome idea. Like, like, you know, totally. good luck. But they were actually taking, you know, their wallets out and, and buying the product. And then they were telling their friends about it, which is how we gained a lot of the momentum for our campaign. So launched the campaign, closed it, uh, took the $150,000, placed our first production run, built a website. And then our next level of hypothesis was, okay, once all of these strangers that we have no idea who they are get the product, Will they then come back and rebuy? And will they then tell their friends about mm-hmm. it? So we launched the website in October 2013, and we did another $300,000 in sales 
between October and December at the end of that year. Wow, nicely um, done. So good, good momentum. Some good feedback. Came into 2014 feeling pretty confident about you know where things were going, and then our next hypothesis was okay if we raise some capital and get into this digital marketing thing that we've heard about with people like Bonobos and Warby Parker, who were kind of the big guys at the time doing this, uh, can we pay customers to come in to buy our product and will they love it as much as the people who came in organically? So went out to raise just a couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family uh, in early 14. um, And that quickly snowballed into a pretty formal seed round um, where we closed about a million dollars in September of 2014. During that same time period, we got casted for Shark Tank. And, you know, we thought it was a joke. We, We ended up going through the process. They filmed us. And then about Two weeks after we closed our fundraising round, of which, by the way, we'd never taken any institutional capital. We only took angel investor capital, um, so small checks. So, you know, for all those entrepreneurs out there, like you don't have to go VC sure. um, in order to kind of raise capital and build a business. So, two weeks after we closed our round, we get a phone call from the producers and they go, Your episode's going to air on the season premiere oh in two God. weeks. So, before we could really deploy any premiere, of this capital, oh, nice. we were like, Oh my God, we're going to have this massive like television commercial. So we end up airing September twenty September twenty six two thousand fourteen. Our website crashes, and in the following ah. two months, we sell out of all of our inventory. Mm-hmm. So we did about leading into Shark Tank. The first thirteen months of our business, we were at nine hundred thousand in sales, uh, all organic, no marketing. And then two months following Shark Tank, we did one point two million. So we closed the year of twenty fourteen at one point eight million, which is our first full year of business. That's incredible. And are you happy with the deal that you made on Shark Tank? Yeah. So. You know, there. You know, we don't disclose a lot of the details, but we basically had renegotiated the deal because we had, for for the benefit of both parties, we had just closed a million dollars of financing. So, you know, Damon was like, "Do you really need another two hundred thousand dollars?" And we're like, "Not really. Like, we don't really have a use for it." And so, we found a way to kind of work work with equity, you know, to have him motivated and incentivized to help us along the way. Uh, but without putting any capital. Yeah, I have to imagine like the vast majority of deals on Shark Tank get immediately renegotiated. <laughs> like, because it's just so in the moment and things happen so quickly between the time. Yeah. And I, and you know, and the, uh, like the due diligence that's done, sure. I mean, it's probably a little bit questionable too. But. Yeah. And I also think it depends on, you know, they were the, the producers of the show are like, look, I know you got a deal on air, but we're not necessarily going to air your episode. So like, you've got to operate your business as if this right. is not done. And I think the sharks are smart. They want to see if the episode airs, what's the consumer response before sure. they actually ink the deal as well, right. which I would do the same thing. Right. So right. is that actually how it works? I mean, the, the, that's how our deal, I can't speak for right. everybody, but that's how our deal worked. Okay. Um, and imagine it's like a prudent thing to do. If you have a consumer product, What's the consumer response if you put it in front of 13 million people? Right. The nine-minute, you know, public television commercial, basically. But it would just be a question of the timing because you know yours, your your episode aired pretty quickly after you would raise your money. Sure. But that's not always going to be the case. Yep. Or that's why you have to operate your businesses totally, if it's not and they don't even know if it's going to run at all. Sure. Wait, but going back to that for just a second, how did you actually get? Tapped to participate in Shark Tank in the front. Did so you we go after this random it, casting coming? email from from you know? This casting agent, they all use like, because they're all like temps, they all use Gmail accounts. And I was like, I don't know, is this like one of those like Nigerian prince like emails? I was like, this random Gmail person is asking us if we want to audition for Shark Tank. I was like, that seems like phony. But no, yeah, they they saw our Indiegogo campaign. Okay. um, Which you, 
if you watch the show a lot, you hear a lot of times, a lot of people are like, we launched on Kickstarter. We launched right, on Indiegogo. Right. They go to find brands kind of that have it, had yeah. success on one of those platforms because they already know right. that the consumer buys into the story, You know that the entrepreneurs are good on camera in a certain way or they're good at selling their story. Um, so... So could you can you talk a little bit about digital marketing, just your strategy in general, mm-hmm. then, now, and how you see it in the future? Because I think it's just such a different... So you're a direct consumer. 98%. 98%. Okay. Yeah. So you're in your fifth year of business? Sixth. Sixth. And you're just like, when did you go from direct to consumer, which is selling online on e-commerce, for those of you who don't know, and then uh, when did you decide to start selling? Or I don't know what that other percentage is, but is that yeah, brick and wholesale. Mortar? Okay, so how did you make that decision, and and can you talk about that part of it a little bit? Sure, and and just to kind of I think set it up. So um, so after Shark Tank, we went into 2015. That's when we started putting some of our money to work with digital marketing, and I can explain you know how we got started there. Grew the business to five million that next year, then 18 million the year after, then 50 million, then 100 million, and we're you went set from 18 to, to 50. 18 to 50. There's a marketing story in there. Okay, I would like to hear that. Explains uh, the reason that. And then we're we're set to about double again the business again this year. You're gonna double in a year. Yeah. What are we missing? Okay, cough it up. Let's have a second product. Um, so (laughs) as far as digital marketing, so you know, if you go back four five years ago, which is really kind of when we started to, you know foray into this space. It was still way more immature than it is today. I mean, this is a landscape that's constantly changing. It wasn't nearly as competitive. There weren't as many direct-to-consumer brands. I mean, I feel like there's thousands oh, pop there's up every so single much day. Noise. And, you know, that dilutes obviously the supply that's available. And also when people start to, you know, they see what other brands do that works well, then they copycat that. And then all of a sudden that message gets diluted, right? The founder story video, right? Which like now everybody's doing. Not to say that we were the first, but like I know Harry's did one before us, but that was a hallmark creative campaign for us. In that year that we went from 18 to 50, we had donated our millionth pair of socks Mm -hmm. and we created a video around it where I basically promised my Randy, it was a kind of a bet and a joke. I was like, if we ever donate a million pairs of socks, this is the day that we launched Indiegogo. I was like, if we ever donate a million pairs of socks, I'll get a tattoo of our logo to celebrate. And I had no tattoos at the time. So this was like a <laughs> random like thing uh, that I never thought would happen. And so he was like, if you do, I'll film it. And so we hit a million pairs two and a half years into the business. He filmed it. I got the tattoo. He filmed it. And our marketing team and the creative team were like, what did the tattoo say? It just says, it. it says be better, which is our tagline and has our B logo. Um, and so, uh, so they were like, let's turn this into a thank you video for our customers, right? So all the supporters that send it out via email and just like a real kind of ode to them because we couldn't be here without them type of thing. So we created that. And then our head of marketing at the time, uh, who's now our CMO, was like, I want to use this for acquisition and see if it works. We ended up putting it on Facebook. And this is like when video was new. It was like Mm -hmm. a new thing used to market on social. And collectively, I think today it's got it has something like 180 million views online. Oh my god! And we were getting like we were getting like average like single digit CPAs for like nine months off of this thing. So we'd be able to put a shit ton of spend behind it in order to. And that's that was a large catalyst for that jump. um, Wow! I think that video generated. 
thirty million dollars of revenue. Oh alone. my! I'm gonna go watch it. I yeah. still I'm one of the hundred and not. And then one we of created our five millionth pair video, and then our ten millionth pair, and so it's been somewhat of a hallmark. But we've always tried to reinvent how we tell that story um, every single time. Sure. So our ten millionth pair video was around. So we have a donation sock, which is a sock that we specifically designed with the homeless community and some of our partners that has antimicrobial treatment. It's got uh, reinforced seams and darker colors to minimize visible wear. And we had this like amazing idea to create a video about the greatest sock never sold. So it all talks about, you know, we just shipped 10 million, our 10 millionth pair and yet we've never sold a single one. Right. Right. So it like really sets up this idea of, you know, why would you advertise a sock that you can't buy? And then we talk about why it's important. And, and know, here's the one you can design. buy in exactly. order to here's support the one, that exactly. one. <laughs> Just kidding. Here you go. For this yeah. one. It is really great. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, because you started to touch on it before, but can you talk a little bit about the name and the logo and how that all ties in? Because Yeah. It's, so it's uh, some genius uh, creative partners, specifically Aaron, kind of took a couple of weeks and went away and came back. And he's like, I think I have it. It's called Bombus. It's derived from the Latin word from bumblebee. Uh, bees are altruistic animals. They work together as a hive to make their world a better place. And, you know, the bee ended up becoming like our spirit animal. And so that's where the name came from. That's where our tagline, Be Better, which is spelled B-E-E. It's knit on the inside of all of our socks, stamped on the inside of all of our apparel. And it's kind of our version of Just Do It, which is like a gentle reminder to just mm-hmm. be a better person. Uh, every single I day. like it because it's like it could have gotten... You guys did a very good job telling the story and with your brand, obviously, because it could have been very confusing. I mean, the question could have been like, are these made are out these, of honey or what's are going these on? socks donated to benefit right. bees? Right. Which we which we explored early right. days. Right. And yeah. and that's the thing, a lesson in in you know, less is more, right? Um, right. I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time that like in early days it's easy to throw a bunch of shit at the wall and, and, you know, expect that more, right? More stories. All right. So we donate a percent of our profits. And then we also implore, you know, uh, you know, underprivileged women in these countries. And then we do this and then we do that. And then our features and benefits. And then we, you know, it's, women like, run business it's like all of a sudden the consumers, whoa, what what the, like, for? what are you? Like, right. How many, you can't be all the, I mean, you could do all those things, but you can't talk about all those things, which is ultimately, if you look at Warby Parker, I think they're a great example of that, right? They launched with one-for-one eyewear, but then they also had, no, we're a $99, you know, there was a price point, you know, thing. And then they were try on at home, right? And then they had the like technology component of face thing. And they're like, the consumer's not going to absorb these five messages, you know? And then ultimately fashion became another one for them, like style. So they ended up, putting the the donation one down on the totem pole, even though they still do it in practice, they realized that their stronger brand story was $99 fashion and try at home. Like, right. And the give back component is sort of like a nice little punctuation mark, but yeah. they're not leading with it. Right. But like, it, it's hard to find even on their website these days. Yeah. Even though they still do it. They right. honor I, it. I was literally just in their store yesterday getting an eye exam. And I was you? dilated. <laughs> well, it was funny because it occurred to me because I... I noted that because there was nothing in the store yeah. that suggested one, right. one, and there were all these books. The whole aesthetic was like a, almost like a library, yeah. And it was very fashiony and so many sunglasses. And I just thought, what happened to this get back component with Warby Parker? It actually crossed my mind. So it's interesting. I'm glad that they still do it, but yep. they're certainly not talking about it. But good for them for you know realizing what's resonating and how to continue growing. Yeah. So Bamba, so safe to say you didn't have any. IP problems there. No, <laughs> yeah, good for you because that's a real yeah, pain in the ass yeah. these days. Yeah. Uh, it's like everything is taken. 
Yeah, it's it's, we got like an invented name. Yeah, I mean, even something that doesn't work crazy either. like Arizona or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> Inside joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about? So, you're starting to say just a little bit of advice to entrepreneurs, but what is the what is the one piece of advice that you would you would give I, to I, someone who's trying to turn their passion into a project, yeah, a, a profitable pro- project? I, I do say focus is 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 the one that I consecutively go back to because it was the piece of advice that was given to me early on. You know, try to do one thing really, 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 really well, or at least focus on trying to do that one thing well until it you've proven that it doesn't work, and then you can pivot. But if you try to do too many things at once, especially when you're very limited on resources in terms of cash, in terms of time, you start to get spread way too thin. And then all of a sudden, nothing works. Mm. You've got it. Things like digital marketing, or if you're going to go with a wholesale strategy, those are two very different businesses, right? Running a digital business and running a wholesale business at scale, they complement each other because you've got volume and you've got logistics teams set up and it becomes a lot easier. But early days when it's just you or you and a couple other people and you have no money, the digital side and the wholesale side operate on very different calendars and you know shipping is very challenging. And so to try to combine the two of those things at once is just one example. Going back to your 98% Direct consumer. Yeah. And I, I remember also, I got early, really early on, I got excited. We had done about $500,000 in sales. And I was like, we're killing it. We're on top of the world. And <laughs> Wish you like, were. We're going to start yeah. making underwear and sweatpants and t shirts, <laughs> and everyone's going to buy all this stuff. And yeah. a good mentor of mine, uh, Blake Mankowski from Tom's, who I'd actually leaned on really early on, um, who's amazing. He gave me so much of his time. He was like, you got to think about all the brands that you've ever, that you like really admire and love, especially in the consumer product space. And he's like, all of them have started with one product, mm-hmm. right? Nike started with running shoes. Lululemon started with leggings. Under Armour started with base layers. Like, you can look at all these companies who really went deep and kind of owned something before they leveraged, you know, mm-hmm. their growth to, into other categories. Um, and he's like, at Tom's, for the first uh, three years, we sold one silhouette of a shoe in four colors and built like a really big business off of that. Yeah. And so, like that was like I was like, oh my god, you're totally right. Like, yeah, I just want to figure all of these things out because there's a lot to figure out along the way. Sure, right. um, there's the digital marketing component, there's the warehousing component, there's the team building component, there's you know all of these aspects that there's so many ways along the way to like fuck up or, yeah. or have challenges yeah. that, these problems you need to solve that if the more complexity you add in early on, the, yeah. the harder. Yeah. The, it's the, safe it to becomes. say mitigating risk is just like a full-time job, but the, the distribution channel. So in terms of distraction, mm-hmm. right? So that the chant, the sales channel and then the product line extension yep. are two very common, I think ways to get distracted, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And trip up. So now, are you guys going to go into other products? So we and are in other products. Have, you, I know you do t-shirts. Yeah. But, and so, sweatpants and, and sweatshirts, okay. which we launched last week. And then you're going to probably start selling honey, obviously, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, honey is not on the time horizon. But for the first five years, we were online only through our own website, bombas.com, uh, and socks only. Wasn't it really tempting, though, to go into wholesale? Tempting. Yeah, we had people knocking on our door. Yeah, uh, We did one wholesale company campaign, but it was more of a marketing initiative where we did a collaboration with The Gap and it was super awesome. They donated a million pairs of socks as as a result of our campaign. It was holiday 20... 
2015 or 2016, I can't remember. And we were in all 3,200 stores globally. So it was like nice. a cool brand sure. awareness component for yeah. us. But outside of that, no, people were knocking on our door. They're like, you know, we want you guys, you know, this is what we'll do. And we were just, we we're like, look, we're experiencing, you know, massive triple digit growth in our core business. We're not, we don't need to find other channels for growth right right now. So as we start to look for the future and yeah, at some point we're probably not going to continue to double the business year over year consecutively. And that's when we start to think about, okay, what are the seeds that we need to plant today to start building some of these other big business units, you know, as we look to the future. So about a year ago, we, we dipped our toe in wholesale. We worked only with kind of the best retailers in their own specific segment, but we wanted to look at how does how does Bombas sell at a department store? How does Bombas sell at a retail at a, an athletic store? How does it sell at a you know a boutique gym store? We wanted to look at the data while we still can control mm-hmm. the distribution in a really meaningful way and start to figure out that once we do decide to pull the lever fully, where are we going to go? How are we going to tell that story? How is the product going to show up? Because I think one of our biggest fears, and particularly as we talked with wholesale, is that you know. A large part of our success was in storytelling and brand building. And when you're online, the beauty of online is that you have almost an unlimited palette by which to paint that picture, right? You've got video, you've got audio, you've got creative, you've got photo assets for an item that is, you know, three inches by like six inches on a, on a store shelf, we can tell this really in-depth yeah. engaging story. And this is where I think things like Harry's and Warby and some of these other items that, you know, were born online we're able to gain a lot of momentum because of, you know, they're able to tell a deep story about a small product. Well, and I think also an element of that is uh, going back to what we were saying earlier, there's, there are so many different pieces to what this product and what this brand is all about. And you are controlling that narrative and figuring out how to lead. And to your point, when you're direct to consumer from your own website, you have that direct engagement with your customer, which is so valuable. And when it's something that's sitting on the shelf, I mean, do you feel like there is a, a challenge in getting the consumer to embrace what is now the way that they're seeing it, a, just a really fucking expensive pair of socks sitting next to the Hanes, for example, on the shelf? Yep. I mean, is do, do, do you it's run such that a risk? push, right? Yeah, and online so it's such pushing. a pull. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, our our hope is, or our thought process is now that we are of a certain size that hopefully we have some, some level of brand awareness. Right. right of um, you know, we've got an incredibly large marketing budget and um, you know, it's funny when we went into retail ever since we've been in, in the stores that we're in, we are the number one selling sock in that category, you know, in, in, in the store uh, by brand. And, you know, I was like, oh, I don't, you know, it's like, this is crazy. Like, this is amazing. Maybe people just really love our product. And, it's funny. Our private equity partner was like, "No, you have a budget that is you're you're spending money on TV, radio, right. you know, Facebook, and all these yeah. other areas that is like a hundred times what any other business would spend in a year." So Good they're like, you. "You're gaining some of the benefit of somebody driving in their car and hearing a serious satellite radio or a podcast ad." And then walking into a Nordstrom's and being like, oh, right, that's the brand I just heard about, or I saw the PR piece, or I saw them here, or my friend was telling me about them there. So there's not, I don't imagine right now that there's a ton of just brand new discovery right. happening in some of those. But stores. so in that way, it's, it was really a timing thing. Like Correct. you couldn't have done that Correct. before being able to have the, you know, 
what has been the gift of being able to spend all this money on marketing. Correct. That's great though. But now, I mean, sorry, the last thing that I'm going to say on digital marketing, because it's, it's such a quickly evolving landscape. I mean, it's also it's, getting very competitive. It's getting very competitive. So now it's like for a brand that's launching right now, it's very expensive to acquire a customer online. And it's increasingly kind of cheap on the brick and mortar front because, sure. uh, you know, nobody goes to a store anymore, but like experientially well, doing a pop-up. Say, people do go yeah, to stores. They do, but obviously, so like, you know. represents something like 75% of all transactions happen in retail. Yeah, for sure. But it's, it's becoming more affordable, I guess, is my point, to kind of revisit and take a second look at brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Totally. As opposed to spending God knows what on, you know. Well, I will say I, the, Instagram. The, the like the one antidote to rising CPAs and, you know, cost per acquisition and digital marketing spend online is good creative. Right? Like what 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 actually ends up resonating? Yes, that's a, there's like a hard thing to to determine there, but like you look at the Dollar Shave Club video, like that went super viral, mm-hmm. right? Things that resonate and cut through the noise. So like when you see what everybody else is doing, and like you know some of these like meal supplement things are all just pouring them into a glass, then they all start to look the same. Mm-hmm. You, if you're wanting to go into that business, you've got to try to do something completely different. Don't just right. do the same thing that you see all your competitors doing because then it's just going to get it's more noise and it's going to dilute everybody across the board. When people are zigging, you've got to zag. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've always tried to do. And we still have pieces of creative that go out there and get us low $20 CPAs. Can we scale it at, you know, to keep up with the scale of our business? Like not always, but you know, that's our constant, that's the challenge of our internal agency and creative team is, you know, let's think of new and inventive ways. And we have this video out right now for our Merino wool socks. And we got Dan Marino, which again, I'm probably aging myself, <laughs> um, to be in it and you know to talk about these are the best damn Marinos. And and he walks in the room and he's like, it's someone calling my name? And we're like, no. <laughs> I love Dan it. Marino. It's damn Marinos. So, That's um, a good one. It's doing really well. well. Yeah. Nice. It's doing really well, both on TV and online. Nice. Um, but it takes like some ingenuity to kind of like, cut through the noise. Yeah. Um, and, and some money. And work online. And some money. That's he, money. Yeah. He, he didn't do it for free, did he? No. no. <laughs> yeah. But not as expensive as you would. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it is 2019. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of the give back component, because yeah. obviously this is kind of the impetus for the whole business totally. and you really backed into it. Absolutely. I mean, it's something that we played around with a little bit when we had our eponymously awkwardly talking about that now. project um, <laughs> where we were trying to do some vitamin one for ones. And you, you touched on it earlier when you when you were talking about how what you donate is not actually the same product, which I think is, you know, for the- It started as the same product, but right. it actually evolved because we found out that the needs of the homeless community were different than the ones sure. that were consumers. And it just makes so much more sense, yeah. I think. So do you think that in this landscape of new businesses and this, you know, I think kind of second wave of direct-to-consumer where so much of it products, consumer products feel very kind of personalized and, and you know, uh, well, personalized, I guess, to to the ordering, whether you're talking about meal plans and programs or or other types of, you know, the, the undergarments, et cetera. Yep. I mean, how important is the, is the give back component, I guess, always, should it always play a role? Is it incumbent upon these companies at this point to say like, we're all a part of this community where we're seeing these big successes in, you know, in building new businesses and starting up and it's, it's, it's our responsibility socially to play a role. Is there some level of 
kind of transparency that people with a give back component have to play. I mean, I'm just I'm just trying to wrap my brain around how startups should be thinking about a give yeah. back um, as part of their model and and whether it always makes sense. And I think, I, of course, I'd love to see a world where every business does this, right? Because if you can build it into the DNA and the financials of your organization, then like. It's great, social good, and you know, even at the end of the day, if all you do is just feel good about it, then like that's a great win, right? It's the one to help the many type of idea. Do I think it's required in order to be successful? No, I think a really good product can still sit on its own. But I think if you are going to incorporate something, um, it's got to feel super authentic, right? You like the Blake story with Tom's, like he went down to Argentina, he saw this problem, and that's why he wanted to donate shoes to this underserved population. The Warby guys saw that there was this massive, you know, issue around, you know, access to eye exams in developing countries like Haiti and Jamaica, um, and worked with World Vision and stuff like that to identify this problem. It makes a lot of sense. Um, for us, you know, I was handing out socks on the streets in here in New York City as once I learned this problem. So I got super close to it. Um, if it is something that you're going to do, you have to, you can't like bolt it on after the fact, right? It's got to feel super, super authentic. Yeah. You know, I was advising this company that I invested in recently is a, a coconut based ice cream company. So dairy free, allergen free, all this stuff. And she was like, I really want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And I was like, why don't you go visit, you know, the coconut farmers that, you know, where all the coconuts are coming from and like figure out, like, I'm sure if they're in the developing world, I'm sure there's things that they need, either access to education or clean water or whatever. I, I don't know. But these are my ideas. I was like, Go down there, figure out, you know, if you do want it, you've got to get close to it. You've mm -hmm. got to experience it mm -hmm. yourself. You can't just check the box on like a business plan and be like, we're going to do this and send some money here. Like the more, the closer that you get to it, and the more that you believe in actually wanting to make a difference, that will start to carry through in the story and, you know, the marketing that you decide to tell. But the consumer is smart these days. They can kind of see through you know, what works you know, or what, what's authentic and what's not. Right. Which I guess this, that, that's the other piece of the question is, I mean, it, it, I think that it's, it's very powerful and it's very clear when you say that it's an equivalent give back and yours, I mean, okay, it's not the same product, but it's the equivalent. Sure. Do you think that it resonates as much when you see a company that's saying, you know, a portion of our profits goes to XYZ. Sometimes it's completely unrelated to- I don't. Personally. I don't either. That always sounds like just a bunch of yeah. vague BS. It seems like they just yeah, like did it to do it. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather them do it than not do it. But do I think they get any meaningful credit for it? No. Right. I mean, when you hear, I mean, when we survey our customers, depending on the marketing campaign that we're running at the time and which way they came into the company, uh, our donation is either number one or number two in the terms of the reason they buy. Mm -hmm. Comfort is either number one or number two. So this is like the two kind of um, competing forces. But what I have to believe, and in all of the years that we've been doing this, is when somebody sits down at a dinner table and they're telling their friends that they just bought a new pair of socks, the idea of saying like, hey, I just bought a new pair of comfortable socks. You should go out and buy these. People will be like, why are you telling me about your socks? Right. When you say like, Oh, and the company donates a pair to, for every pair they sell to the homeless community because socks are the number one. Most. That starts to become an interesting story to tell, yeah. right? And we've trained our, our customers. And this goes back to the focus idea of just telling the same story over and over and over and over again. It makes it easy for the customer to start telling that same story over and over and over again. Um, and so we're training them on how to talk about our brand and 
you know, then it starts to become this kind of movement. And it's very easy when you give them something as simple as like, did you know that like the number one, right. you know, require requested, requested uh, I already failed the story. Yeah, you did really good. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but it's such a great entry point to talk about it. Um, nice job by you. Can you share, please, your biggest oh shit moment, good or bad? Yeah, I mean, the first, the first was definitely when our website crashed uh, for Shark Tank. Um, I, I had we had no prep. I mean, they basically call you two weeks prior to the episode airing, and crazy. Um, you know, this was pre the day of like Shopify Plus when you had websites that could scale infinitely on infrastructure. Uh, we were on Magento. And we weren't oh, a tech Magento! Company. Right. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh, so uh, it it bombed, and I you know at the time you know we were probably like losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in orders. Um, and it just felt so catastrophic. But last year, the bigger oh shit moment was we had under projected our, our sales volume uh, for the holiday, which we ended up doing about 50% of our revenue between November, and December alone. So it's a big portion. Of I got our, my first pair for Christmas present. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big portion of our year. And so when you under project volume, especially for the warehouse at that time, we under projected Black Friday through Cyber Monday at under 30% uh, of the order volume that we ended up actually doing. So the warehouse got completely bowled over. Um, and at the kind of volume at which we do orders, you know, you add 30% to 20,000 orders a day and it starts to be a very, very large number. And then their technology systems broke down. And so we didn't realize it because we didn't have the systems in place, but we weren't getting back any tracking and order information for close to seven days uh, from our warehouse. So our customers thought that we, they t- we took their money that we didn't ship the orders. So then the domino effect is that they start hitting the customer service website, you know, right. the team, which <sighs> doesn't scale either. And so then our customer service team got to about a seven day lag time on responding to customers. Oh, God. And so we had a backlog of like 20,000 customers who were just asking where their orders was. People were like, you're a fraud. You stole our money. Oh my God. This business insider article that came out. Oh, people no. were like tweeting, like put yeah, sure. on social media. And then they called us and they were like, oh, what's going on? Are you like stealing people's money? And I was like, I'm, no, we're not stealing people's money. And so I had to make the call. Was, we're never going to dig out of this. So we just have to we just called it a quarantine project. We had to quarantine these 15,000 because every day new customers were yeah. coming in with a new complaint because they would place the order and then seven days later they weren't getting the information. And so it was just this oh like, my revolving God. door of How people many? having a horrible customer experience. We quarantined <laughs> these 14,000 people and I just said, refund them their money, send them an email that says, you're not going to get a response from us. I'm sorry. We've refunded your order. And here's a gift card with the same value. Please come back in January and hopefully, like, give us another shot. It's like an Oatly, yeah, story. Yeah. That was that was a and what happened in January? Yeah. So, and so this in total ended up costing us three and a half million dollars. Wow. No uh, way. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. One point so seven million of refunds and one point seven million of gift cards. Yeah, that's an oh shit moment. Yeah. So, or I guess an oops moment. Um. So. <laughs> You said you're doing 20,000 units or transactions a day? Orders. Orders. Well, I think at the time, something like 30,000. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. Nice. But it was it was a lot. The volume was super high. Wow. But the, the sentiment that ended up coming back in January was people were like, I've never had somebody do that. And it was just like, we did the right thing. It yeah. You saw somebody. the redemption on those cards. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, lifetime yeah. value on those people ends up being oh my God. higher. But you think Actual about lifetime. how many fathers woke up on Christmas morning sockless. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's don't, heartbreaking. Don't remind me. It was, it's not a, it's not <laughs> no, a fun moment. But that's actually, I really appreciate you sharing that with, with us. That's a, it's a vulnerable moment. And, you know, in, it's in recent history of a company that's got some history. So it kind of goes to show that, like, there can still be those oh shit moments, even though, even when you are at a place where you kind of think you've got your yeah. stuff figured out. And you know out. what? Honestly, in those moments, this is where, like, I also tell people early on, set, set your core values. Define what is important to you as an organization, because we set deliver extremely high expectations to our customers, like go go above and beyond for our customers. And that was when we just, it wasn't even a, an internal debate about refunding them, you know, about giving them a gift card to come back. Right. It was just, it was built into what we do. And, you know, so not to have that internal debate with finance and all these people being like, well, we're going to donate, we're going to, you know, refund all this money, how, you know, you know, screw the customer type of thing. Like they'll figure it out, like whatever, they'll come back. I was like, no, no. like we do the right thing by them because this is what we do. Good for you, Dave Heath. But it was hard. <laughs> I appreciate that. It was really hard. Of course it's hard. So but, now, so now, now that- I'm terrified for this Q4 too, but we've overplanned, hopefully. But again, everybody well, go do your Christmas shopping early. Yeah. But on yeah. that note, so what's keeping you up now at night? I would say getting, I mean, every year Q4, you know, is uh, we're just at the start of kind of hitting the season because it, it, it makes or breaks our year. We always say that a good day in November can wipe out a bad month earlier in the year. It's <laughs> right. like that type of volume. But I think from a larger, more strategic level, the, the, the two things, one is, you know, how successfully will we bridge the gap from moving from a sock company to an apparel company, right? Everybody knows us for socks. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we start establishing ourselves for the most comfortable t-shirt and the most comfortable sweatshirt and, you know, who knows eventually underwear and other products that will come okay. down the road. I gave um, you some, some ideas offline. Yeah. Back to that. Oh. Will, uh, will, will our product and story work in other countries? So we're starting to think about international. Like, does it resonate? How do you tell the giving story in a country where maybe they don't have the same compassion level of compassion for the homeless community? Right. Um, or the same homeless community. And I think lastly, uh, mostly culture, you know, that's, that's the thing that I spend an, an inordinate amount of time thinking about. We started the year with 50 people. Uh, we're 130 right now growing super fast, but I think there's this immense amount of pressure uh, in six years of business. Only four people have ever voluntarily left the company and only one of those people left for another job. So mm-hmm. three people left for like personal reasons, um, mm-hmm. either to go back to be closer to their family or to go back to school. And so that's great. That's an amazing track record. Yeah. And you. so we're super proud of you know the culture that we have. And, you know, as the team expands, you just hope that you can, you know, and, and, and as the fact that it's hard, it becomes harder and harder for me to have one-on-one relationships with every employee, right. you know, how do I right. well, that's, scale that? That's the trickle-down yeah. effect of the culture that you've implemented. So. so what percentage of your sales right now are overseas? Oh, less than, less than half a percent. Oh, yeah. okay. Zero but it's available marketing. in how many countries? Uh, I mean, any country can okay. buy it. It's just the shipping costs are prohibitively expensive okay, at this right. point. We're looking to employ Passport and you know some of these other shipping services to try to gauge it. But I think I think we've got enough competence that we've built a multi hundred million dollar business here in the U.S. That some sort of that 
you know, success should be able to be replicable in some of the key other markets. So it should work in England. It should work in Canada. It Mm -hmm. should work in Germany, should work in Australia and New Zealand, but who knows? It's all the question marks. Fascinating. Good stuff. Wait, can I just ask one more question? Because we are kind of a wellness podcast too. (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) We're not just business. You spend a lot of time giving and thinking about others. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you take care of yourself? I'm actually really good about uh, carving personal time. We're not a we're not a work culture where I expect people to work eighty to one hundred hours a week. And I think a lot of these things start from the top down. You know, I typically show up at eight a.m. I'm typically out of the office by six. Um, I work out almost every single day before work. I do a twenty minute twice daily meditation practice. And then I take a lot of time off. So, you know, I typically take three weeks off at the end of the year. Uh, I go somewhere far and remote, completely unplug. Um, and then I do a couple other, like I'm a big snowboarder. So I do a couple ski vacations a year. And again, my phone's away. I'm able to fully disconnect, get back into nature, give myself the space to think bigger picture and longer term, um, get myself out of the day to day. All right, for that's you. pretty good. Kind of doing all the right things. I Jeez. learned I had to. You know what? Yeah, you I just, do learn. I, you know, I, I tried to look at the people who I thought were successful and the people that I, you know, wanted to role model myself off of, and I started to find these consistencies. Um, mm-hmm. I actually think there's a really good Tim Ferriss book about this. Um, I had a dream about him last night. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, I'll tell Can you we talk about, about it. Or is it appropriate? <laughs> it was a it was a little romantic, okay. <laughs> but we'll talk about it later. Oh my god, you totally shocked, <laughs> shocked my memory. Um, I think it's called Goliath. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's all the collection of stories. Yeah, yeah, and you start to look at these behaviors, and honestly, the one thing that I found from like world leaders, CEOs, like top athletes, everybody meditated. Um, a lot of people you know, had a daily exercise routine. And so I just started to figure out these commonalities. And I was just like, look, if they're doing it, right. I, I can't be working for me somehow. to do it. Too. Right. It's been yeah. really helpful. It's really, really helpful. Um, all right. Well, we'll ask the last question really quick, just because I feel like maybe you're going to have some fun answers. Who is at your fantasy dinner party and what's on the menu? Mm. Um, fantasy dinner party. I'm a massive Seinfeld fan. So definitely uh, the whole cast, including Larry David, would, would be there. Yes. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm a really into F1. I'm a massive Lewis Hamilton fan. So I would have him there. I'm not so interested in politics, to be honest. So I don't think there's any like real big political leaders uh, you know, that I would have. Oh, uh, Gretchen, the new like the, like the the girl from Sweden, who's like the pol- climate. I just think she's oh yeah, so oh my god, yes. cool. And what would I serve? I'm I'm really I love I love food. I like love meat and all this stuff. But again, I'm starting to realize like when I look at patterns, I think we're all moving towards a predominantly plant based diet. I I totally believe the science. So I'd probably have some like awesome. It'd probably be catered by ABCV. Oh was, okay. Um, John George's vegetarian yeah, yeah, restaurant. I said that I would be a vegetarian if I could eat there every, for every single meal. That place is yeah, I know. It's pretty bad. And dirt candy are like never eaten a dirt candy. Oh, amazing. I know. There's two places that I'm like, oh, like you can actually really make this stuff taste. Sure. Wildly, yeah, I know. It's amazing. Like wildly Those good. Dosas and ABCV. 
awesome when you leave as well. Yeah. Um, cool. I definitely feel better when I eat plant based, but oh, I love a good burger too. So you like okay. a good it's burger? your fancy dinner party. Yeah. Yeah. Burger no, that is think of it as your last make meal. you feel as good as something. Oh, last meal pizza would have to be there. <laughs> oh, right. pizza, damn good. The fat kid inside me loves. I could crush pizza. <laughs> I could eat like four or five slices. No your problem. IFK? What's that? Inner, inner fat, fat kid. Yeah. That's I like, actually was fat, so it's not so inner. <laughs> it's just former. 60 pounds. That's your FFK. Yeah. So it's so funny. I don't even story. know what that means. Like, like, how much do you weigh now? 180. Okay. All right. Good so, job. like 80 pounds. What do you do? You run? I cleansed. Okay. Um, You're welcome. Print, obviously. I did print. <laughs> I did isogenics. I did like every single one of okay. them. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, I started exercise. And the, the large correlation, obviously, between regular exercise, it's, it's funny, like, they always say, like, diet is the thing that will ultimately make you lose weight. But when you exercise, your body craves better food. Right. So, That's like, right. I find it way hard to stay on a healthier diet if I'm not regularly exercising. Yep. Right. Even yeah. though the exercising is, you look at it, you're like, oh, I burned 700 calories. I could eat that in like, in like you know, one, yeah. a second. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Four or five. It just makes you more conscious. <laughs> and your body craves, your chemistry like, changes. when you're working, your body craves the nutrients that yeah. are like better for you. It doesn't crave like fat and like grease. It creates, you know, craves vegetables and clean protein. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, that sounds delicious. We might have to crash that dinner party. Cool. Um, all right. Well, this is like super. I think. I think a lot of budding entrepreneurs and even established business owners are going to uh, appreciate uh, your words of wisdom and your experience. And it's been such an amazing journey for you so far. And we wish you so much more luck because you're Thank doing you. such great things. Yes. Thank you yeah. for thanks for keeping having me. us warm and cozy. Thank you for being here. <laughs> Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at hgwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.